three-dimensional transforming musical linguistic objects. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And today we get to listen to a long-forgotten talk by one of our most important elders, Jim, or I guess I should say James, Fadiman. Let me see if I can put the length and depth of Jim's career in perspective for you. I'm sure that you are aware of Stuart Brand, who created the Whole Earth Catalog, which was an important publication for the counterculture during the 60s. Well, while still a grad student at Stanford, it was Jim Fadiman who took Stuart Brand on his first LSD trip. From there, Jim joined Myron Stolaroff at the International Foundation for Advanced Study, where they studied the potential of using LSD to enhance creativity. Over 300 people participated in this study before LSD was made illegal. More recently, Jim has been on the Joe Rogan podcast talking about microdosing and his groundbreaking book, The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide. This talk that we are about to listen to was given at the Transpersonal Vision Conference in 1988. In it, Jim presents what, for me at least, is an idea that I wished I'd heard many years ago. Like you, I've heard a lot of the so-called New Age talk about unifying one's consciousness and bringing our minds into a unified state through all kinds of spiritual practices. But the image that Jim Fadiman presents in this talk has given me the key that I've been searching for for all these years. After we listen to Jim's presentation, I'll be back to see if you picked up on the idea that has, for me at least, given me exactly the metaphor I've been searching for. We are here this morning to look at a fairly radical idea which is a reformulation of the term self. And I suggest it's radical because it goes against the major theoretical systems of the West as well as most of the major theoretical systems of the East. The only merit in the proposition I will put before you this morning is it appears to be true. <laughs> and as you know, fact displaces theory very slowly when there is an entrenched emotional and intellectual commitment to theory. So I want to very briefly go over the theories that are inadequate. And then having brought you all along, we will look at what seems to be more realistic. And I've made a number of circles here so that I won't have to leave this one microphone. The Western tradition, circle number one there, which is a circle with some little rays from it to make it seem like it's shiny and exciting and positive, that is the notion that you are a single, central, unified, individual self. And an enormous amount of what we would call transpersonal therapies and systems are to move you towards that goal, to move you towards being your capital S self, your higher self, your true self, your essential self, etc. As you remember, there was one Egyptian pharaoh who tried monotheism and was soundly trounced for it as soon as he died. 
We then have the whole Hebraic theory of a kind of one God. This is where we get the idea of one self. And if you actually, however, read the uh, commandments very carefully, it wasn't that there was one God, but there was one special God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me, indicating that uh, Jehovah was perfectly well aware of the highly competitive atmosphere in which he worked. <laughs> so that the, quote, monotheism is not quite as firm as you might have been brought up. Christianity says it is monotheistic. Again, if you look carefully beneath the surface, uh, it's an odd monotheism with a triune essential God of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And if you've ever been into a Catholic church, you will notice that it is littered with icons representing aspects of the self. Uh, particularly if you notice most of the churches in Europe are not dedicated to Jesus at all but to Mary and that the general notion is that you have interceding on your sinful behalf in heaven a woman and a young man who are both telling their father to give you a break <laughs> that is what is called monotheism and as you can see, although there is a theoretical monotheism, beneath it there is the awareness of there needs to be some kind of separation to make some kind of sense to the psyche. Islam is probably as close to monotheism in a major system as exists. There is no God but Allah. There is nothing but Allah. And in order to try and retain that in Islam, there is a general rule against images, against icons of any sort. And if you actually look at the theory, the personality theory underlying personal growth in Islam, the goal in most systems is called fana, which is the falling away of anything personal, the being absorbed totally into Allah or into the Godhead very similar to some Eastern systems. However, many systems also in Islam say that is not the final step. The final step is baka, which is the return to the world from the fana state, being in the world but unified. Theory. If we take that down into the West, the monotheism we have Freud, that you're more familiar with, the theory of the ego dominant, but as you notice, immediately Freud reverts back to the triune system and suggests that beneath any unity, there is the ego, the id, and the superego, which do not dissolve. The unions, what is the striving? Individuation, the becoming unified, but underneath always the shadowy Greek pantheon of the archetypes. So that even within those of you who love Jung, and most people who like Jung love Jung, because you get all those wonderful people to hide out inside your head. And that makes sense, as we'll see. And then the minor pantheons, Fritz Perls, every part of you represents all of you, if you've ever done any Fritz Perlsian dream work, the kind of holographic theory of personality. Psychosynthesis, subpersonalities, 
where there's the notion of a higher self, but unfortunately there are a lot of lower selves to deal with. <coughs> and that the goal is to somehow blend, melt, merge, mush the lower selves into the higher. Again, aspiration, theory, one self. And a counter ploy, counter kind of weight to that in the West is only William James. William James says you are many selves and that each situation evokes a different self and that yourself is whatever you identify with. And how do you know you identify with it is when someone disturbs it, you are disturbed. So some of you now are Republican selves, Democratic selves, some of you are Chevrolet selves, Right. Some of you are female selves, meaning when any woman is disturbed, you're upset, and so forth. Most of you are identified with your children, with your parents, etc. So James suggests the self is not limited by the body, but is a question of attachment. James' suggestion, however, is again towards the ideal, which is to pick one of yourselves that seems to be good and stick fast to it through many situations. Okay, a rather simplistic view of mental health being holding on to oneself. And again, what James, however, points out is it's not likely. So in the West, we have this idea of a unified self, all made up of the same stuff, not a compound. But as you notice, every time we push a little bit into the idea of the unified self in the West, underneath it, there's internal diversity. And as we know, we tend to think of ourselves as going towards unity, but in truth being diverse. Now, if we take an opposite point of view, circle two, that is the no-self theory, central Buddhist doctrine. And I just checked with Jack Canfield before I came, Cornfield this morning before I walked over to make sure that I was on firm Buddhist ground about the no-self. And the no-self is, is an odd idea as well, which is it says, in a sense, there's nobody home if you pay close attention. Okay. And the goal in many forms of meditation is to eliminate everything that isn't you until nobody's there. <laughs> and if I can read you a little bit from a very classic uh, description of that position, this is the, the questions of King Melinda to the Buddhist sage. And the king comes to visit and he says, uh, how is your reverence known? What's your name? This is to the spiritual teacher. As Nagasana, I am known a great king, but that's just a denomination, a designation, a conceptual term, a current appellation, a mere name, for no real person can here be apprehended. And then the king basically uh, questions him and says, is that possible? To which he announces that it is. And he says, well, everyone calls you by your name. Are the hairs of your head your name? Is the hairs of your body you? Or perhaps it's your nails, your teeth, your skin, your muscles, your sinews, your bones. They love this. Your marrow, your kidneys, your heart, 
your spleen, your excrement, your bile, your phlegm, your pus, blood, grease, fat, tears, sweat, spittle, snot, fluid of the joints, urine, or the brain in the skull. You know, it's what's at the bottom of the list. <laughs> is, any, is this the sage? No, great king. Is it your perceptions, your impulses, or your consciousness? No. Then is it the combination of form, feelings, perception, impulses, and consciousness? No. Is it outside the combination of form, feelings, perceptions, impulses, and consciousness? No, it is not, great king. Then ask as I may, I can discover no sage at all, just a mere sound. Your reverence has told a lie and has spoken a falsehood. Then the venerable sage says, hey. I'm summarizing here. What he says is, how did you come to visit me at my hermitage here? With, by the way, 80,000 people in attendance. I did come, sir, on a chariot. You've come on a chariot, then please explain to me what a chariot is. Is a pole the chariot? No. Is the axle the chariot? No. Is it the wheel, the framework, the flagstaff, the yoke? No. Is it the combination of those? No. Then what is this chariot? I can discover no chariot at all. Just a mere sound is this chariot. But what is the real chariot? Your majesty has spoken a lie. There is no chariot. Your majesty is the greatest king in the whole of India. Of whom are you afraid that you do not speak the truth? All right? Your majesty has spoken well about the chariot, it goes on. It is so with me. This designation, this conceptual term, is what people call me. An ultimate reality, the person cannot be apprehended. Okay? That's the other position, the doctrine of no-self, the doctrine of egolessness, the doctrine of fana, the doctrine of that there is not only no there there, but there's no here here. And there is no self, just a congregation of ideas, wishes, lusts, and attachments. And if you let these go, as you've noticed, any of those you've let go, there's been no feeling of loss. The body, obviously, is the same kind of collection. And when you cut your hair, you feel no loss, etc. But, of course, you say, ah, but there is a single unity. The single unity, yes, there is a single unity called life. In the back of the game, there's always life. But that's not personality, that's not self, that's not soul, that's not the individual as you talk of yourself. Because we know that you can have life and no personality. And I'm not talking about anyone personal here. <laughs> or even political figures. <laughs> But if you think of it, a person who is in a coma, who is brain damaged, is alive, but we do not think their identity is intact. That's two theories. The third theory is the self does exist, but it is not unified and cannot be unified. It is a collection of personalities not unified and not non-existence. Now, that's, that's the position. 
Now let's turn to some data and see what emerges once we let go of the fiction of a single self and the theory of no self at all. And then begin to look at your own lives. Now I came to this by looking at multiples, multiple personalities. Multiple personalities is a kind of emerging field of study and it is a uh, it is supposed to be a pathology in which the individual body contains different personalities with different points of view who may or may not be aware of one another and whose behavior is often totally contradictory. Now that's a pathology and that's supposed to be a very extreme pathology. And in that pathology, the differences are quite severe. For example, uh, personalities will differ as to handedness. So there will be right-handed and left-handed personalities. Again, those of you that know your theory of handedness, okay, know that's about the, the structure of the brain. Therefore, given the theories that you know, changing handedness from moment to moment is not possible. However, the data indicates that it is possible, and here we go. Begin to look at the data versus your theories. Um, the one that I like, because it disturbs me the most, is there are many cases of multiples, some of whom are colorblind, some of whom are not. Okay? Everyone remember that chapter on the physiology of the eye and the cones and the rods. Okay, way, way below personality, except it may not be true. Then another one that might interest some of you is some multiples are diabetic. Some are not in the same body. All right? So there's something very unusual about the capacity of the personality to dominate the form. Now these are, these are very well documented by the kinds of researchers who would bore us if they gave us their data. <laughs> All straightforward physiological stuff. The other thing that happens very often in multiples is there are personalities of different ages, of different IQs, who know different languages, have highly differentiated skills, there are also considerable data on multiples are of opposite sex inside the same body in every way that, that we can kind of imagine that. And there is considerable data in the cases that we know of from the psychotherapy world. These are multiples, I mean, these are people who come in either for therapy or because the police have brought them in for crimes and amnesia is one of the uh, hallmarks. There are also helpers. There are higher and lower beings that appear with great regularity in looking at multiples. And the data is extremely clear that helpers exist for many multiples. Uh, the, probably the most famous case is a man named Danny Milligan, 
a wonderful book has been written about his inner life, and uh, he appeared for us in the press when he was accused of four rapes and admitted that his one of his personalities did three of them, but he was innocent of the fourth. And he was acquitted on the basis that the major personality, known as Danny, didn't do any of them. And as one studies him, uh, his, the personality that is a criminal and a robber who abducted the girls didn't do it either. It turned out that the rapist was a personality unknown to most of the other personalities who was a very, very miserable and lonely lesbian who literally raped the girls for companionship. Okay? A little unusual in every respect. As Danny Milligan is in therapy, and the problem with working with multiples in therapy is you've got to know who you're working with and who you did work with and who told who about what went on. What comes out after... Uh, he's in therapy like for two years and finally goes on trial for the rape and is acquitted and sent to a hospital for further therapy. He's acquitted to, to be hospitalized. He's not acquitted. He's sent to be uh, for the disturbed insane. After several years of work, when he is infinitely healthier, meaning the various parts of the personality speak to one another and are aware of one another, a figure emerges called the teacher. And the teacher, it turns out, has taught the... There's one personality who is an escape artist. There's another personality that is a uh, classically trained British-speaking um, kind of highly literate member, kind of sardonic literate member of the establishment. Uh, there's another one who speaks Yugoslavian. Uh, the teacher taught all of them their respective skills. And um, the story goes on. Okay, I just want to give you the kind of data that I started with in looking at that. Now, the easiest thing, of course, to do with that data is to say, isn't that weird? I'm sure the National Enquirer will cover it adequately. And I can go about my life because obviously I'm not that weird. Well, then I started to look at that and look at what causes a multiple. Jim, we've been able to extend your session five minutes. <laughs> I already said I was going to take 10. <laughs> the theory, what happens with multiples in almost every case, what are called true multiples, is there is a trauma in childhood. And the trauma is so severe that the personality cannot stand being present during the trauma and literally divides into a part which is present and a part which totally withdraws denies, ignores. And in almost every one of these uh, clinical multiples, there's a small child who is impervious to pain. And this child appears throughout the lifetime when there is severe pain. So this is one person that only knows a life, very intermittent life, of pain and suffering. 
Many people who had or are multiples have no awareness of the fact because the multiple is simple enough, this is the clinical theory, so that the repressed part is so deeply repressed that it does not appear in later life. Uh, let me give you a case of someone I talked to recently. Uh, this woman was a lawyer, very heavy-duty power figure in Washington, breakthrough woman on various federal levels, very important figure in Washington. Um, she got in touch with the fact that as a child her father had tortured her sexually and mechanically. And that so kind of broke up her world that she has now learned to be a social worker. Um, she's in good shape, but feels that it's more important to help people of abuse than to hang around Washington. Uh, for most of us, we think she is considerably healthier. <laughs> what she began to see as she got hold of memories that filled her with enormous fear and horror for a number of years was that her father was also a multiple. Her father was actually a distinguished screenwriter in Hollywood and had escaped from Nazi Germany. Uh, but one of his sub-personalities was a kind of uh, worst of Nazi. And she recalls the critical moment in their relationship when she's down in the cellar of their home and he is attacking her with a chisel. She's seven years old. She picks up the chisel and stabs him. He looks at her and runs screaming and weeping out of the cellar and into psychotherapy. Because until that moment, the part of him that was a distinguished writer had no idea that there was a part of him that tortured and sexually abused his daughter. So that there is a level of unconsciousness in multiples which is extreme. Okay? Now, if you remember Freud, Freud suggested that traumatic incidents fixate part of the personality at a lower developmental level. So within Freud, we have the beginnings of a notion that parts of you are of different ages, different times. Now, let's, let's assume for a moment uh, that you are looking at this from the outside. Now, let me give you some ideas to suggest to you that that third diagram may be yourself. Now, the bottom of the last diagram there, which has little boxes, is a pathology version. The little boxes means they're not aware of each other. This is just a pie for a moment. Now, let me give you an example. This is, if you were a multiple, you would have different aspects. For instance, have you ever gone to bed saying to yourself, tomorrow morning I'm getting up early, I'm going to go to yoga and exercise, I'm going to do my meditation, I'm going to eat a good breakfast, and I'm going to be on time. And you think, oh, wonderful person, right? Because that's really the way you feel. And then in the morning, someone else wakes up. <laughs> Okay. Who are those people? <laughs> Is that a model of the unified self? Have you ever had an argument with yourself? Should I do the... I don't know. Well, of course I could. 
Well, it's only 300 calories, but then again, I could skip dinner tomorrow, but you know you won't. <laughs> Ever had that argument? She's so attractive, but you know what happens when you get into one of them. No, but this might be different. Why do you think it might be different? Because I always think it might be different. You always do. One of the questions that used to puzzle me is why did insight not make any difference? <laughs> the reason is that the part of me that has insight isn't the part that does those things. <laughs> and the communication is poor. Have you ever gone to sleep with a problem and awakened with a solution? Who did it? Not the, not the you that you think is your identity. It obviously was asleep. Well, it was my unconscious, it was my subconscious, it was my angelic spirits, it was, you know. You have a theory that suggests you're perfectly well aware that you're not unified and that you know how to use some of the differences correctly. Some of you, for instance, have a phobia. Now, phobia is a neurotic pattern that even you think is neurotic. <laughs> and if you watch someone or when you're having a phobic you know, little trip, what you're aware of is part of you thinks, this is so embarrassing. I know that a moth will not kill me. But... <laughs> The part of me that doesn't know isn't sure, and tales of killer moths are around. So the part of you that is phobic cannot be reasoned with, and the part of you that is reasonable isn't in control. A very wonderful friend of mine at one point uh, has a phobia of physicians, which isn't, seems to me in the right direction. <laughs> frightening procedure and she called me in total hysteria and weeping and generally uh, deep fear and I was not being terribly helpful and at some point there was this little change in the breathing and she said to me I'm really fine you know and I said I know and then the hysteria started again right so part of her was saying, I'm perfectly aware that the part of me that's crazy and hysterical is in almost total control, but please don't worry. <laughs> okay? There's a part of you that has that position. Uh, I was in a hospital in Australia once recovering from an accident, and the medication I was given had a side effect of paranoid psychosis. And I watched that, <laughs> and I thought to myself, part of me doesn't think this is true, but part of me knows that the murmuring I'm hearing outside is the two nurses on the night shift, and they're pointing out that I'm the last one in the ward to become totally addicted, and they're going to have to increase the dosage, so I will be part of the other addicts that they make money on in this hospital. So the next morning, I said to one of my physicians, I said, excuse me, I don't want you to be a problem, but I'm going psychotic. 
And I said, I will be going psychotic, you know, be probably going fairly soon, so. <laughs> and then they did check my medication and find out that was what was going on, okay? <laughs> you don't need it. Uh, some of you may be Vietnam veterans, or you may know Vietnam veterans. Uh, I've been with Vietnam veterans, and we're walking in the country, and a car backfires. The next thing I know, my, my companion is lying in the ditch at the side of the road, being careful. Okay? Trained for a while so that a part of them really knows that when in doubt, jump in the ditch. Okay? That's a multiple. That's a healthy multiple when it's in control. So what I'm suggesting is a realistic theory, which I've been calling the braided self. The individual strands of the self harmoniously interacting and interrelated. You watch a flock of birds. They are a diversity, but they operate as a single unity. And also, if you study birds, they don't have the same leader. Because leading turns out to be a little tiring. It's actually physically more draining in terms of airflow. So they change leaders when it's appropriate. And if you begin to think of yourself as a collection, then the goal is not to be one high being or to be nobody, but the kind of end picture over there which has little things all pointing toward the center, which is a team which is a team that functions exactly as a team should, with every member doing what it does best when that's appropriate. And although I'm amazed that I would come to this in my lifetime, football is a good metaphor. <laughs> Baseball is less good, because a lot of people sit down a lot of the time. But that if you think that a part of you is strong, a part of you is clever, a part of you is kind, a part of you... These are parts that are more or less well-developed. And under this position, it begins to give you a way to restructure therapy, for example. Therapy now is not to destroy or eliminate the parts that are functioning at the wrong time. See, it makes malfunctioning not a question of evil, but a question of inappropriate at the wrong time. You all, for instance, having eaten breakfast, your bladders and bowels are doing what they've been trained to do. And you will probably take care of that at the right place and the right time. That's health. If you do that at the wrong place and the wrong time, then the culture finds that disturbing and you find it disturbing, and if you really lose total control of that tiny sub-self, uh, they do a lot of things to you. What you will notice when you are, quote, misbehaving is the part of you that is well-developed is doing the wrong thing in the wrong time. Not that that part of you is bad or that you're inadequate or inferior. Now, other problems which we now can open up more easily is what are, what is possession? 
What are evil spirits? What are angelic forces? What are these helpers that appear in all the multiples? And they say we are the spiritual counsel. And very often they'll work with a psychotherapist designing the treatment plan. And the treatment plan will work. And the therapist uses that, you know, that added capacity. Just as when people are asked, what can I do to make my life better? Everyone can make the list. Part of you knows. That doesn't mean that part of you is in control or should give up anything. So what we're looking at is a different way of appreciating yourself and permitting yourself to be who you actually are. And noticing the part of you that's here and taking notes, for example, and the part of you that misplaces notes are both working parts. The problem for a true multiple is that they don't respect each other's parts and they lack the ability, they lack in a sense the knowledge of where you should go at any given point in your psyche to find what you need. It's like when I'm preparing a speech, I have books, psychology books, Buddhist books, uh, literary books, books of quotes, and if I know where to look, I can get the help I need for the thing that I need to do. If I don't know where to look, I may either look nowhere or I'll look in the wrong place. And every once in a while I have opened my notes and found I have the wrong speech. And someone else, you know, should, someone else wrote it for some other occasion. So I'm really suggesting a very simple model, which is to look at yourself and to really ask the question, what's the evidence for the kind of Christian one soul, one self? What's the evidence, internal only, for the Buddhist position of no self? And the wonderful thing about Buddha is whenever he was asked a metaphysical question, he said basically, check your own experience. Metaphysics is of no importance. But unfortunately, he's gone. Check your own experience. To what extent do you appear to yourself to be a collection? We have time, perhaps, for one or two questions. Yes, please. The radical transpersonal view is that you don't need a brain to have a mind at all, and that there could possibly be floating around in space uh, disincorporeal cells. Okay. Enter a weakness. Okay. Uh, radical transpersonal theory suggests that you don't even need basically a brain body to house a self or a collection of cells, and that there may be another way of looking at the whole picture, which is even beyond this, uh, what the Buddhists call wonderfully, the skin bag full of dirt. Okay, the Buddhists are not real body lovers in many of their aspects. Uh, given that would simply take this one step farther, and we might draw this then without the outer circle. Yes, yet. Well, I'm wondering if you looked at the work of George Gurdjieff, talks about a thousand eyes. Gurdjieff uh, talks about a thousand eyes, but most of them are towards working for and supporting and developing more essence. So Gurdjieff has the same prejudice, even though again he doesn't have any evidence, prejudice towards the one higher terrific self. 
so Rajiv, as Asajoli, and a few others, there are a lot of the sub-personality theorists. I'm saying if we take it one step farther, suddenly it all makes sense. Please, Jackie. I see that uh, philosophy, there's philosophy going hand in hand with Christianity, because that's basically what they say, is there is a multiple personality. One is the flesh, and one is the God within us. The God within us is teaching the child, which is the flesh, constantly. So I see your Great. is going totally with Christianity. Well, I suspect that Christianity... See, the nice thing is every major system has within it something based on evidence. <laughs> and it is from that basis that it is easier to develop a position. And that any system that's lasted more than a thousand years has some very powerful truth left. And the notion of the only concern I would have, Jackie, is you're still making too few cells. Because the evidence is there are there appear to be more, and I do, I, I do understand what you're saying, is that within Christianity this could make sense, and I'm thrilled. One more and then we're out. Uh, who is the uh, sensory conductor who, who says what self Again, be careful of your metaphor because you picked one where there's obviously the conductor is the higher being. Uh, football feels better because everyone gets in the huddle and usually the quarterback calls the plays after everyone agrees that's appropriate. But there are other occasions and there are times when, for instance, when a famous conductor dies his orchestra then usually gives a concert without a conductor to demonstrate that the conductor is incorporated into the cells. So we can have a good time with this, many metaphors. You have many other things to do. Thank you very much. So did you hear the concept that got me so excited? My guess is that, well, it may not seem so earth-shaking to you as it was for me, but the truth is, I've never been able to unify the person that I am into a single consciousness. There's the dad, the grandpa, the husband, the employee, the co-worker, and all of the other selves that I've been during the past eight decades. In retrospect, I've been seeing my life as somewhat of an unstructured mess, but no longer. I now see the flow of my life as a beautiful braid a braid with a number of fascinating and distinct strands, and while all of these strands may not be compatible with one another, when woven into a single braid, I, well, I now see that it is a thing of beauty, not something to be copied or done again, but interesting in its own way. I hope that you will re-listen to this talk while thinking about your own series of life adventures, the mistakes, pitfalls, successes, and joys, Hopefully, you'll see them as a part of your own long and beautiful braid of life, one that your descendants will tell their grandchildren about. As William James once said, you are many selves. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Namaste, my friends.